Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Welcome to this edition of the Biblical Foundations podcast. Our guest today is Nancy Guthrie, well-known author, speaker, and the National Biblical Theology Workshop leader. Also, I'm joined today by my uh, wife, very special co-host, Nancy Margaret. Welcome to our podcast. Honored to be here. Andres, thank you so much. And Nancy, it's so nice to sit down with you and talk with you about some of your favorite topics. Oh, I'm honored to be with you both. Some of these topics are some of my favorite topics as well, (laughs) namely biblical theology and the story of Jesus. So why don't you start by taking a moment to tell our listeners a little bit about your background and about your present work and projects? Okay. Feels like a big question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I guess... I was telling someone yesterday that I kind of, there's a little bit two, of two sides to my ministry. Okay. Uh, one side of my ministry flows out of the experience my husband and I have. Uh, we have three children, and two of our children have died. And a lot of ministry has actually emerged out of that. Um, I've written a number of books in regard to grief and helping hurting people. Uh, We've been a part of a ministry called Grief Share. That's a a video curriculum used in about 1,200 churches around the country um, to have small groups of people for people who are grieving. Mm. In addition to that, David and I host weekend retreats for couples who have lost children in our home. We do those about four or five times a year. Mm. Uh, But I guess the other side of me comes out of uh, my own discovery of biblical theology. I'm someone who grew up in the church. In fact, we're recording this here at Midwestern Baptist, and I first heard about Jesus at Gashland Baptist Church, which Mm. we could almost throw a rock and hit it. (laughs) Incredible. And um, so I grew up in church. You know, I was that kid who had all the answers, and I studied Bible in college, and I began working in Christian publishing right out of college, working with a lot of Christian authors and books and such. Um, went, sat on the front row of BSF for a lot of years, but it wasn't until maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago that I began to hear teaching and preaching that had always had Christ at the very center from Mm. no matter where they were working from in the Bible. Mm. It was always connected to who Jesus is and, and what he accomplished in his life, death and resurrection. And it just sounded different to me. Mm-hmm. I, I remember especially when I discovered Luke 24, where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he's with these followers, and they don't recognize who Jesus is, and he and they're so discouraged that the Jesus they thought was going to, as they say, redeem Israel, uh, has been crucified. And Jesus says to them, oh, foolish of heart, so, so, um, so slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer before be entering into his glory? And he's saying, you know, if you'd been reading your Bibles, then you would have known and understand. You would have understood that Christ was going to suffer before entering into his glory. And then this amazing verse, Luke 24, 27, uh, Luke 24, 
4, 27, which says, Then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained all things concerning himself. And when that really hit me, I just, you know, first of all, I began to wonder, where did he begin? And what did that sound like? And I just realized that, you know, all the Bible, all the Bible study I'd done most of my life uh, was not like that. It made me feel like I actually needed to go back to the very beginning okay. and go back to kindergarten in understanding the Bible. And yeah. so I just began to study the Old Testament that way, trying to ask the question, what might Jesus have said on that road about this passage mm-hmm. in regard to how, in what way it was about himself? That's fascinating. Yeah, so I guess that kind of feeds into my next question, which is what is the underlying burden and vision for your biblical theology work? Oh, the biblical theology workshops for women, because of course, like you said, we're here at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, and you're about to do a sold-out workshop for us here all day tomorrow. So, for people who are not yet familiar with these workshops, based on what you just said, can you give us some background and specifics? I'd love to talk about that because I'm on a mission. <laughs> Good, I'm on a mission. My mission is to infiltrate women's Bible study in the local church. With biblical theology. Mm-hmm. The reason for that mission is that I believe that so much of, I, I won't say most of, but so much of what is called Bible study in the local church is very felt needs driven, very role driven, very celebrity driven, uh, very topics of interest driven, but is sadly, not always very Christ-centered. Okay, yeah. And so, you know, as I just, even as I look on church websites occasionally, and I'll see whatever the women are studying, and, and sometimes I'm just brokenhearted because mm-hmm. it, it is these other things. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's felt needs oriented, and, or it's just um, inspirational rather than theological. Um, as if women can't think, and of course we can, <laughs> and as if women aren't expected to be theologians. And okay. we are all theologians. We're, we're bad <laughs> or good theologians. Mm-hmm. We are Christ-centered or not Christ-centered theologians, but we are all theologians. And so it's my desire to introduce and then infiltrate women's Bible study with a sense, with understanding the Bible as one story centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then at the workshops specifically, what I'm doing is, first of all, I'm training women, hopefully, to get better at being able to articulate mm-hmm. the story of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And as I often share, I, I grew up knowing lots of stories in the Bible, but I'd be pretty embarrassed for you to know how recent it was. I could string them together okay. and tell you mm-hmm. how they fit together. Mm-hmm. And it, when we don't know how they, they fit together, it means there's huge chunks of the Bible we just ignore. Right. Because we don't know how to make sense of it. And I think that's especially the prophets. Yeah. Because we great. don't know what to do with them. And mm-hmm. so I want to train women to have a better sense of that storyline. And then I'm introducing to them some uh, important themes that the divine author has written into his book. And, mm-hmm. and if He's written them in. It's because that's what he wants us to know. Right. And so we want to go to the Bible with those themes in mind. And my contention is that the more we understand those larger themes, 
then whenever we go to the Bible and get to a smaller passage of the Bible and we see one of those themes arise in it, we're more likely to interpret that scripture rightly right, in accordance with the divine author's intended message. Very good. Because we're seeing it in context of that theme. Yeah. Well, I've just been reading your book, Saints and Scoundrels in the Story of Jesus, and you apply some of this, I think, in your writing. Um, and so this is a forthcoming book. It is. Right? With Crossway. Tell us about the backstory to this book and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. I think, I think most people think that, and, and maybe this is the case with most writers. This is probably the case with you too, because you are so smart, is that you become an expert on something and then you write a book about it. And because maybe I'm not so smart, most of my books have come about because there was actually something I didn't know mm-hmm. that I want wanted to figure out. Okay, And so I committed to write a book about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, when you study to prepare to communicate it to someone else, mm-hmm. You study a little harder. You really have to get a good grasp on it to teach it to someone else. So this book you're speaking of, Saints and Scoundrels in the Story of Jesus, um, it began where most of my books have begun, which is with curiosity. And there were just particular characters in the Bible that I felt like maybe had a very limited kind of that old Sunday school understanding of who mm-hmm. they were. Mm-hmm. I could have told you everything, but maybe, but I wondered what's behind that and mm-hmm. what what motives were operating and what background caused that person to be this way or act that way. So, I mean, the first two that I just knew I wanted to study some more, one was John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Here, here, Because to me, he's fascinating. Here's um, He recognizes who Jesus is while he's even in the womb of his mother. Mm-hmm. He leaves for joy, right? When Mary shows up and she's carrying Jesus, he clearly understands at least something about the mission of Jesus when Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he could see Mm -hmm. and understand that in that moment. That's amazing. But then, you know, there's that last scene in his life where he is imprisoned Mm -hmm. and he sends his disciples to Jesus saying, are you the one Mm -hmm. or should we be looking for another? Mm -hmm. And um, so I I wanted to figure that out. And I came to the conclusion that that was all about that he he had immersed himself in the Old Testament scriptures, I think especially Isaiah. And he read passages that talked so much about the judgment that the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ would accomplish. And he, like the other um, Jewish people of his day, just did not understand this this would happen in two comings mm-hmm. and that in his first coming it would be a ministry uh which he, this is the message Jesus sends back to him right mm-hmm. um i'm here i'm i'm uh, bringing sight to the blind and i'm healing the lame and i all these things and, and that he is doing in this first time when he comes in this ministry of mercy and grace and welcome in. And he he uses some of those same passages in Isaiah that he sends um, John's disciples back with. But um, it's as if John hadn't seen the whole picture and mm-hmm. he had so focused on the judgment and Jesus is showing him, no, the Messiah was always meant to do all of these things. Mm-hmm. And of course, he couldn't understand that it would happen in two comings. But as I looked at John the Baptist's story, what I saw at the heart of his ministry is it's a ministry of repentance. Right. Yes, But it was fun to me to just even think about 
him being out in the wilderness and all the people are coming to him and he's got such a hard message right? because he's basically saying to them, everything about your life must change. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes that message. Right. And yet they're flocking out mm -hmm. there to see him out in the wilderness mm -hmm. and they're going into the waters of baptism with him because mm -hmm. they want in on this coming kingdom. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, that, that's just one of, of the stories of, of, of people that I sought to uh, pursue in this book that yeah. I just found fascinating. Yeah, that was really, en I enjoyed reading about that. One of the other chapters in your book, you talk about Jesus' family. Yeah. Uh, and specifically, you mentioned the women well, uh, in the family tree. Yes, in his genealogy. genealogy Isn't that yeah. interesting? Yeah. Uh, you guys have probably written about this a lot more than I have. But mm -hmm. um, yes, the, his genealogy is fascinating because uh, clearly Matthew is wanting us to understand the kingship of Jesus as he traces out that genealogy. You could tell just by the way it's organized. It's interesting that he mm -hmm. mentions five women, yes. not typical for genealogy. But then the other thing is that the women he does mention a couple of things about them. Most of them are Gentiles. So we see how even in his genealogy uh, that God has always intended to have a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's even in his genealogy. But even more than that, they're all women whose lives have been touched by sexual scandal. Right. And... As I looked at that, I was just thinking about, so, you know, what can this mean for us today? I think it's, I think it's incredible to think about the God of the universe. I mean, he got, you and I didn't get to choose what family we got to be born in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he did. Mm -hmm. And I mean, wow, did he, in, he didn't enter into just the messiness of this world. I mean, he entered into the messiness of his human family. It was mm -hmm. right there. Right. And I, I think just that genealogy gives you and me a lot of hope mm -hmm. that if we think, you know, well, I didn't come from the right family and I have a shameful sexual history mm -hmm. and that somehow that's going to bar me right. from being a part, uh, being joined to Jesus in this kind of family way, mm -hmm. evidently not. not. Yeah. It's just a message that the, the doors of mercy are thrown open to whoever wants to take hold of him by faith, because that was the key to all of those women who get included in. Mm -hmm. It was that taking hold of by faith, saying, I want in on the promises of God. Mm -hmm. And that's what it takes. It's not a perfect record. Yeah. I really appreciated your message of hope in general throughout the book. Oh, good. Yeah. In another chapter, you talked about, I think it's entitled The Hypocrites in Saints and Scholar, uh, Scoundrels. Yeah. Um, and so what was the problem with the Pharisees and maybe what hope do you bring forth in that story? Well, those Pharisees, um, I think one thing about them, I think we think of them because we know how all the stories go. Mm -hmm. And if we've been in Sunday school at all, we know they're the, the bad guys. Yeah. So it was interesting. It was helpful to me personally to figure out um, what was it about them that made them such and to consider the fact that actually if we had lived it in their day, we wouldn't have seen them that way at all. They They were heroes. Right. Uh, if we understand the history in those silent years um, mm -hmm. before Christ was born, we understand they had done some heroic things to help um, solidify a Jewish national identity. Mm -hmm. But in the process, they had taken the law of Moses and taken things that applied to just 
particular times and particular people, such as the priesthood, and made it apply to everybody. You know, Mm -hmm. if the priest is supposed to wash, everybody's got to do all these washings. Mm -hmm. And if at this time of year you're supposed to fast, well, we're going to fast twice a week. And so they just they expanded on these laws and they they made a relationship with God about that kind of rigorous law keeping. Right. And and so the truth is there was no genuine uh, covenantal love relationship, which from the beginning of the Bible, that's what God has always wanted. Mm-hmm. He's always wanted our hearts. Right. And Jesus says about these guys, you know, their their lips may be saying the right thing, mm-hmm. but their hearts are far from me. Yeah. And so uh, they're, they're putting these kind of burdens on the people around them. And this is what the people aspire to. I got to try to be good like that. And mm-hmm. Jesus comes with this incredible message. Uh, n- no, actually, and it's it's pretty, it must have been stunning to them when he said, actually, your righteousness needs to exceed that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think when we hear that, it doesn't fall on us like it must have fallen on them. Sure. Because I think their response must have been like, oh, well, <laughs> then it's hopeless mm-hmm. because they're the really holy ones. Right. And of course, what Jesus is getting at is, you can't do this. Yeah. You can't have this kind of righteousness apart from me. Exactly. And he was he was always trying to help people understand it's not about this law keeping and certainly not the pharisaical brand of it. Right. I mean, certainly he he proposed he said, if you love me, you you, you follow my commands. Mm-hmm. So that law of God that we read about in the Ten Commandments. But it's important to understand that what the Pharisees did with the law, they added a lot right. to it and made it a burden. Right. And the law is not meant to be a burden to us. Mm-hmm. It's meant to point us to our need for Christ. Mm-hmm. It's meant to show us both the person of Christ, the character of God, and to just um, you know shine a light on the pathway that he intends for us to walk. But right. those Pharisees, yeah, they were very hypocritical about it. Yeah. Are there is there any hope for hypocrites? Well, we we might not think so. Yeah. <laughs> except that, you know, there's there's records of a of one in particular. Okay. I found it so fascinating to read about Nicodemus. Okay. And he's he's a he's a Pharisee and mm-hmm. he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And he comes and um he doesn't really have a question. He just makes a statement, kind of like, I'm going to put something out there for you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, no one could do your miracles unless he was from God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and But Jesus answers, and what he says to, to Nicodemus he, is he said, uh, you may think these miracles are interesting, but actually what you need is a miracle. Mm-hmm. In fact, you need nothing less than the miracle of being born a second time. Right. And when you read this story, they have this interaction, but you have no sense that anything has really taken place in mm-hmm. Nicodemus. He, has, he clearly hasn't humbled himself to say, I need that kind of miracle, at yeah. least at that point. Mm-hmm. But then later on in the Gospels, we read about Joseph of Arimathea stepping up to go get the body of Jesus. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. once again, this is just, I guess, what I tried to do throughout the book. I, I, I hope maybe you felt this when you read it, and I've had some people who've read it so far who, who feel this way. It's just I wanted to set people in the scenes to feel mm-hmm. feel the, the reality of what that was like. So I just thought about this rich guy, yeah. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who goes outside the city to where it's lined with crosses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of crucifixion. Yeah. 
No one's claiming the body of Jesus. Mm-hmm. All of the disciples have left him and fled. The family's not coming for it. So his body's going to get thrown in a pit. Right. And he says, I want that body. Mm. And it says he hadn't spoken up about Joseph. It says he hadn't spoken up for fear of the Jews. Right. And then it says he took courage. Mm-hmm. And went to Pilate and asked for his body. Right. Love that. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't go alone. We mm-hmm. discover that actually Nicodemus is with him. Mm-hmm. There's been a turn, right. clearly, if he's able. And, and to me, that that vivid picture, if they're going for the body of Jesus, do they like put up a ladder beside the cross and crawl out? It, and are they pulling the nails out? And his body is still covered with spit and mm-hmm. blood. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I just pictured what it means for us to take hold of Christ. I pictured them physically doing that. Sure. As they take him from the cross, they are physically joining themselves to Jesus and his death. Mm-hmm. But about Nicodemus, it says that he brought with him 75 pounds of spices. So I started to think about 75 pounds, you know. Uh, So I I came here on a plane. And if you have a suitcase that's over 50 pounds, you have to pay extra. Yeah. And we all know what it's like to heave some really heavy suitcase. And that can only be 50 pounds. So that helps me think about 75 pounds. Mm -hmm. Here he's been a Pharisee that according to the scriptures, the Pharisees are always putting burdens on people's shoulders. Yeah. And here's now Nicodemus, and he's carrying on his shoulders these spices with which he intends to anoint the body of Christ for burial. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I find hope for hypocrites. There's right. hope for hypocrites in humbling themselves mm-hmm. and embracing Christ. Yes. Right. And because that's an example of one who did that. He did that. Very good. If he could do that, we can too. Yeah. Very excellent. Okay. So that was a scoundrel who turned into a saint, so to speak, in terms of the line of thinking in your book. So what about in the other category of, or was that a saint? Well, let, let's talk about scoundrels who turned out to be saints category. You have a chapter called The Worst. So again, it's similar. I guess it's not the opposite. Um, where you feature a man named Saul. Yes. Whom we know as Paul, Apostle yes. Paul. You present him as someone who engaged in a reevaluation of what Jesus is worth. Yes. And as a recipient of what Jesus gives. Yes. Now, we can see that uh, in an important sense, he's unique. He's different, Paul. So who else can claim that they've seen the risen Jesus and, you know, that he's appeared personally to them? But still, we can learn something from this experience, right? Well, I think so much. I, I think especially, you know, if we put ourselves back in his time period, if you'd ask anybody in that first century Who's the last person you think will ever become a Christian? Mm-hmm. They would have to say Saul of Tarsus. Okay. And, and I love how Luke in the book of Acts, the words that he uses, I mean, are so vivid. He talks about Saul that he is breathing threats and murder mm-hmm. against right. Christians. Mm-hmm. I mean, we read over that quickly, but I mean, wow, that, that's really something. Yeah. And then to think about... Ananias and, and God comes and says, you're, you're going to go lay hands. And he must have been like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Because they're probably all praying that something's going to happen to Paul on the way to Damascus, but they never imagined this. Mm-hmm. And he's going to go put his life in jeopardy to you know, put his hands on Saul. Yeah. And so, yeah, as I, as I looked at Saul, I just realized if we think it's that simply knowing the Bible 
is what we need to become a person who experiences that being born again. Saul knew the Bible a lot better sure. than you and me. He, right. you know, he had studied it under Gamaliel, and it was actually his misunderstanding of the Old Testament scriptures that gave him that passion mm-hmm. against the Christ. Right. And so as I looked at Saul's life, I really I just felt like, okay, this shows us something about what is necessary mm-hmm. for there to be new birth. Mm-hmm. And that is a revelation of who Jesus is. Right. I mean, as as that light shined on him on the road to Damascus and and his first question is, Lord, who are you? <laughs> and, and as I said in the book, I mean, the answer he hears is the very last answer. I mean, here he is persecuting people for the name of Jesus. And he hears, you know, this is Jesus. And he'd yeah. be like, oh, oh. And for him, he had to say, okay, Everything about my life has been wrong mm-hmm. up to this point. I've been yeah. wrong about everything that sure. matters. Right. But that's just a picture to me of what is necessary for every one of us. Mm-hmm. Now, you, I, I, I hear what you're saying in that we're not going to have that experience. Mm-hmm. But you and I do have something that we can gaze into mm-hmm. to see the person and work of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's in the scriptures. It's in the living word. It's, you know, the word made flesh. And we have the Bible. But yet something supernatural does have to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think sometimes we think, especially for maybe someone in our little world, who's the last person we think will ever become a Christian, Mm -hmm. someone in our family, someone we know. Mm -hmm. And we begin to think, well, it's up to me. I've got to get them to read this book. I've got to get them to hear this preacher. I want them to listen to this podcast, right? <laughs> and that's going to be what happens. And God, God uses his word. The spirit uses his word to uh, awaken, to, to take someone from spiritual death to spiritual life. But it is a supernatural work. Right. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that, that yeah. that has to happen at some point for someone to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Yeah. God has to open their eyes to see who Jesus is. Right. And then once that was the other thing that this is clear in Paul's life, that he then reevaluates mm-hmm. what Jesus is worth. And I, I take that from what he writes in Philippians, where mm-hmm. he said, I counted all things to be loss. Mm-hmm. And when he said this, all things he counted as loss, there's a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good stuff, especially for his day. He's a yeah. Hebrew of Hebrews and from the tribe of Benjamin. And It's actually all the things that used to give him a great deal, a sense of his identity Mm -hmm. and and value. These are the things he valued in his life. And he's able to look and say, you know, but actually those things were keeping me from Christ. Right. And so I'm going to count those as loss Mm -hmm. because of the surpassing worth Mm -hmm. of Jesus. And I just I think about how. We're so anxious to get people to make a decision for Christ, and that's mm-hmm. not a terrible thing. Yeah, but it's not merely uh, it's not merely uh, an intellectual thing that has to happen mm-hmm. to being convinced about Christ. I think there's some of that. Yes, it's not merely an emotional experience. Sure, I hope that happens some too. <laughs> but it is this taking stock once you see who He is. That you see who what he's worth. Right. And you say, he's worth letting go of anything and everything that would keep me from him. That's incredible. Very good. 
Well, thank you so much, Nancy, for for this conversation, for joining us today on the Biblical Foundations podcast. And we really do wish you the very best for the Biblical Theology Workshop tomorrow (laughs) and elsewhere, as we see you're doing many of them in the coming days. So thank you. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. Obviously, you have a an incredible God-given gift to to make his word come alive. And um, I, I think, think R.C. Sproul would say it was already alive, <laughs> wouldn't he? Is, wasn't that he, what he was yes, known for saying? Yes, I was a little self-conscious <laughs> about putting it that way, but <laughs> listening to the conversation, uh, I still felt, uh, you know, it. at least uh, it sounded fresh. It sounded uh, real. It sounded relevant. And I, I think this, that's a unique uh, gift that, you have, and I know that women tomorrow and, you know, uh, in at other similar workshops will be blessed and, and, and the readers of, of, of your book. Um, somebody was recently uh, tried my hand at writing a book about Jesus. I know that's not an that's easy right. task. A good book about uh, Jesus. <laughs> thank you. And so Saints and Scoundrels, uh, I've, uh, I've skimmed it, uh, just got it the other day as well. And then and, and it's, it's, it's chock full of, of, of just relevant insights. Very inspiring. And, thank you. Both. And thank you, Margaret, as well for, for having this, uh, this stimulating conversation. So this has been another edition of the Biblical Foundations podcast. We hope uh, that for you listeners, this episode has been helpful for you. And, and please join us again next time. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.